This week we are continuing that series that we started last week where we're working and reading through the epistle that is 1st John. So if you remember 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? It's at the very end of our Bibles, really close to Revelation and those last books, and they're all very, very short books. 1st John just has four chapters, which means you can probably guess what we're going to do in this series, right? Last week we looked at something out of chapter 1. This week we're going to look at something out of chapter 2, and weeks 3 and 4 we're going to do the same. And, and I gave a little bit of the context of this letter that was written to the early church last week that I want to remind you of, because I think it helps us set the scene for what we can expect in this letter. This letter is one of the earliest texts that we have in our Bible. We believe it was written to a church in Ephesus just 60 to 80 years after Jesus walked the earth, which means it gives us a look, a look inside the early church when they are still in the midst of this honeymoon phase, trying to figure out who they are and who God is calling them to be and and what their mission looks like as the church without Christ with them physically on earth. It gives us a chance to look at what they were processing, what they were discerning, and, and what they were struggling with, what obstacles they were facing in that time as they were trying to discern who God was calling them to be as the church. With all that in mind, one of the reasons that I really like this letter is because I think when we read it, what we see over and over again is this early church, these young Christians really wrestling with who they are as humans, who God is, and how those two things collide in a life of faith. We saw those two things play out last week. We talked about naming our sin and facing our sin and then pulling our sin into the light because God is light. And I think we see those themes play out again this week. Our scripture reading for this morning is really short. It's just the first two chapters, first two verses of chapter 2. And it was originally supposed to be longer, but the more I meditated on our text for this morning, the more I realized that really the first two verses, I think, Give us plenty to chew on this morning. So we're in 1 John, we're in chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 1 through 2. Here now a reading from the Word of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. Jesus is our advocate. Isn't that great? I mean, doesn't that sound great? Don't you love that language? Jesus is our advocate. What does it mean? What does that mean when we say that? What does that mean when we read that here in verse John? What is, what is this writer, what is John trying to tell us when he says Jesus is our advocate? That was the question that I found in my head this week over and over again. What are we really supposed to do with that today as a church, as a people of faith? And what I was struck with is that I think the best way to get at what John is trying to tell us by saying that Jesus is our advocate is maybe to first spend a little bit of time talking about what John doesn't mean by saying that Jesus is our advocate. A friend of mine who, who's a pastor was telling me this week about a family that is in his 
his church. This is a family that's really active in his church. They have multiple children, and one of those children is a girl that's in, that's in seventh grade. And he was telling me that since the first or second grade, this little girl has had a pretty crippling encounter with OCD. And it's affected multiple areas of her life, and, and the way that it's manifested itself in her life has changed as she has matured, but it has remained a steady uh, impact on her ability to function with her classmates and function in the world around her. And just recently, it, it changed with how it was manifesting itself in her life. And, and it turned into these, these crippling, compulsive thoughts around her relationship with Jesus and her relationship with God. Specifically, she started experiencing the, these racing thoughts around every little decision that she made in her life and whether or not Jesus would approve of that decision. So it's stuff like this, right? Does Jesus want me to order this off the menu or that off the menu? Does Jesus like what I just said to my friend or does he wish that I would have said something else? Does Jesus want me to wear the red shirt or the blue shirt today? Which shoe does Jesus want me to put on first? What does Jesus want me to eat for breakfast? Does Jesus like the way that I just brushed my teeth or is he upset with me for the way that I just brushed my teeth? Does Jesus want me to sit in that seat or does Jesus want me to sit in this seat? Does Jesus want my mom to turn the car left or turn the car right? You get it, right? I mean, crippling, compulsive thoughts around Jesus judging her, essentially. So I'm sure you can imagine that this specific manifestation of her, of her OCD has made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for her to step foot inside of a, of a church. Because all of those things only get worse as soon as she finds herself in a holy place which has really stumped her ability to grow in her faith and to grow spiritually at a really pivotal time in her, in her life, just on the heels of sixth grade and, and confirmation. She couldn't even really crack open a Bible because she couldn't really handle those stories. I mean, it, just, I mean, it, just, it, really, it really made me, made me sad as he, was, as he was telling me about it. And, and here's what I realized for this little girl and, and her OCD and the way that it's manifesting itself in her life right now is that the way her brain is forcing her to see Jesus in this season is not as her advocate, but instead as her, as her adversary. She is stuck in a rut of looking at Jesus as someone who is who's looking over her shoulder, as someone who is judging her every action, waiting on her to, to slip up, to do the wrong thing, to say the wrong thing, to, to choose the wrong thing, to eat the wrong food so that he can what? So that he can pounce, right? I mean, that's what she feels like which will lead her to experience the anger and, and, and the judgment of Christ over her, over her sin. And I know this is an extreme example, right? But, but when I heard that, I couldn't help but think of what we're talking about this morning. And I know that you probably haven't ever experienced anything quite as extreme as, as this, but I think we too get stuck in ruts of viewing Jesus as our adversary, I think specifically, because I really tried to find some language around this to describe this, I think specifically we get stuck in these ruts when we focus too much on moralism and not enough on grace. Moralism, when it, when it comes to our faith, is, is really referring to that pressure that we put on ourselves, often believing that it comes from God, that is, unless we get everything right— Unless we live a sinless life, unless we don't make any mistakes, God isn't going to want anything to do with us. 
It's what can happen when we make the mistake of turning the Bible into a manual for good behavior instead of a means of grace for us to encounter and experience the living God. It puts pressure on us to do more than what we can actually do. What I mean by that is that we believe as a people of faith that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. But if we get stuck in that rut of focusing too much on moralism and not enough on grace, we fall into the trap of believing that we are saved by our works, not by our faith. And when we do that, our faith suddenly becomes more about what we do or don't do instead of what Jesus has already done for us. What I don't like about a faith or, or a relationship with God that, that rests predominantly in that, in that world of, of moralism is that we begin to focus on not doing the wrong, wrong thing. We begin to focus on running away from sin instead of running towards the abundant life, instead of running towards where God is calling us and who God is calling us to be. We become a people who are running from sin and mistakes rather than running towards Christ with his arms spread open. Moralism also tricks us into, a belie- into believing that we are here and God is there, and that unless our behavior is good enough, it's going to stay that way. And that mostly what we receive from God is just judgment and, and anger for, for not being good enough. My guess is that you have felt that before to some extent in your life. I know that I have found myself in a rut like that where I lost sight of the grace of God and instead began to focus on my many shortcomings and believe that because of that there was a barrier between me and between God. Moralism, when it isn't balanced with grace, leads us to believe that Jesus is our adversary instead of knowing what is true, which is that Jesus is our advocate. The early church that John was writing this letter to is most believed to be a church that was in Ephesus. And this community, during, during this early season of forming and shaping the mission of the church, was facing a whole lot of obstacles and a whole lot of false teachings. But one of those false teachings that was very prominent at that time is something that is called Gnosticism. And, and there are a lot of different ways that Gnosticism is, is manifested and a lot of different nuances of this, of this heresy. You've probably heard that word before, right? The Gnostics, Gnosticism. But when you really boil it down, what Gnosticism believes, what those teachers would perpetuate, is, is a dualism that says the world is evil, that the material things are evil, and that the spirit realm or that God is, is good, And that the way to enlightenment or that the way to salvation is to rid yourself of the world because that is only evil and to instead seek this special knowledge of God that was believed to be attainable. This week I found myself thinking there was maybe some connective tissue there between what the early church was facing in this heresy of Gnosticism And what we so often face as a people of faith when we focus a little bit too much on moralism and a little bit too little on grace. Because both create a dualism that separate us from God 
Both placed God in a removed place from the world. Both placed humans on an island left to their own devices to try and get it right. Both tend to demonize the material world and expect us to solely have good behavior enough to assent to where God is and where God is residing. And neither one of them, if you notice, right, neither one of them focus on God's redeeming action for us in and through God's creation. They both lead people to see Christ as their adversary instead of Christ as their advocate. This week I realized how badly I think we need these first two verses of chapter 2 in 1 John because we too are a people that get stuck in that rut. I want you to hear those first two verses one more time. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love the way this chapter starts. I love it. The language is so tender and so intimate. My little children. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's like like the writer wants to get that into the open first, right? The whole reason I'm writing this letter to you is so that you may not sin. I want you to do the right thing. I want you to orient your life towards Christ so that you are not living in sin, so that you can find freedom from the constraints of sin and death, so that you can live into the abundant life that God has planned for you. I'm writing these things. I'm writing this whole letter with the hope that you will not sin. But if you do, I think that could very well be replaced with, but when you do. But when you do, but when you slip up, but when you make the wrong choice, but when you don't love your neighbor as yourself, but when you act out of greed, but when you don't care for the poor, but when you do, remember, don't forget, remember, remember that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And this advocate is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just our sins, but the sins of of the world. This is an advocate who is working for us and not against us. An advocate who wants us to live without fear, trusting that he has us in his hands. An advocate who wants us to live as a people who are seeking the abundant life, seeking our purpose and and our calling, seeking who he is calling us to be. Not just a people who are fixated on running away from sin, but a people who are running toward what is planned for us. This advocate is someone who has proven to us time and time again that they are not separate from the world, but that they are deeply and and intimately connected to the world. Because this advocate, this is the one who became human, who walked among us to prove to us that he is not our adversary, to prove to us that he is for us, not against us, to prove to us that he is not breathing over our shoulder, waiting on us to mess up, but instead extending a hand 
to us, a hand that we don't deserve, inviting us to walk with him and to be like him. Jesus isn't our adversary. Jesus Jesus is our advocate. And when you look back on his life, it seems like he did everything that he could possibly do to try and prove that to us from the very beginning to the very end of his time here on earth. That seventh grade girl is, is of course, in therapy to try to discern a way through this disorder that's having such a major effect on her life and to try to find a way to to get on top of those overwhelming thoughts that she often feels like she has no control over. And so her therapist recently recommended some exposure therapy, specifically with these compulsive thoughts that she's having about, about Christ and about her relationship with God. So she started off with her mom every night trying to read a story out of a Bible for children. I like the Bible that we give to the kids that are baptized here in our church, predominantly cartoon illustrations and and really slimmed down narratives in Scripture, mainly that tell about the love of God, right, to reveal to our children that they are loved by their Creator. And then the next thing they tried to start doing was to begin, begin praying once or twice a day, maybe before a meal and then next before bed. And finally, once she had begun to get a good grip on those two practices and they become part of her rhythm, her therapist suggested that she go up to the church and that she take some of her favorite stuff, her most comforting stuff from her room, her favorite toys or her favorite books, and to just simply go up to the church and spend some time playing in the sanctuary. This seventh grader is a softball player, so her mom went out and bought one of those a little bit squishier, a little bit more forgiving softballs. And she went into her sanctuary with her pastor, with my friend, and they played catch down the middle aisle of the sanctuary for about, for about 45 minutes. And that was the longest that she had been able to stay in the church in months. In months. And of course, she has a long way to go, right? But she is slowly, slowly starting to realize anew that Jesus is not her adversary but Jesus is her advocate. Hearing that story made me remember what a great job my church did with this when I was growing up as a child. I had memories rushing back of playing hide-and-seek all over the whole campus of the church with all the lights turned off during, during lock-ins, right? Like trying to not run into each other and bust our heads open. I remembered this memory of, of a boy, a middle school boy's lock-in, and for some reason they thought it was a good idea to let us play laser tag in the sanctuary. Like, I can only imagine that board of trustees meeting that had to give us, give the youth pastor the okay for that, what all they had to pull out of the sanctuary before letting us go in and play laser tag. But I'm really thankful that my church knew, my church knew how important it was to show us as children, that the church is a place where we are welcome, a place where we can where we can play, a place where we can be known, and a place that we can realize that God is for us, that God is not against us, that Christ is our advocate, not our adversary. I'm really thankful that I was taught that throughout my youth. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with this information, right? That Jesus is our advocate and Jesus is not our adversary. Well, my guess, my guess is that you need to hear one of two things this week. That you need to be pushed one of two ways this week. 
Maybe you need to rediscover what it means for you that Jesus is your advocate. Maybe you need to go play catch in the sanctuary. Maybe you need to be reminded that God is for you, not against you. Maybe you find yourself stuck in that rut of leaning too much on moralism and not enough on grace. Maybe you need to hear today and believe that God is redeeming you and calling you into the abundant life and calling you into a life of grace and a walk with Him. If that is you, if you do find yourself stuck in that rut, I hope you will invite somebody else into that journey with you of discovering Christ as advocate. If you need somebody, call me. Because I think all of us need, need to realize anew that Jesus is not our adversary. Jesus is, is our advocate. Maybe you hear that and you're like, Ross, I got that down. I know, I know that Jesus is my advocate. That is not something that I struggle with. Well, then the challenge to you is, what are you doing to show others? What are you doing to invite other people in? What are you doing to, to spread that message that you find yourself so confident of? How are you living that out? Because, friends, the church is meant to be a place where people discover the love of God, where people discover the, the grace of God, the redeeming power of God, the awareness of God's presence with them, where they know that God is not separate, no matter what it is they find themselves facing in life, where they experience just a taste of the incarnation, Christ walking among us. Which begs the question for us as a church, right? Who are we? Are, are we a people that are playing catch in the sanctuary? Are we a people that have become too focused on running away from sin or running away from the wrong things and we've lost sight of running towards the abundant life? Are we a people that don't get stuck focusing on what we can or can't do but find ourselves always looking at what Christ has done for us that we could never do for ourselves? I hope you'll hear the good news this morning, friends that Christ is our advocate. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.